Welcome to the latest episode of Ropes and Gray Tech Studio Podcast. I'm Andrew Thomas, co-chair of Ropes and Gray's Technology, Media, and Telecom Group. And today I'm delighted to have with us Andrew Ratch, who is an IP intellectual property litigator in the Silicon Valley office of Ropes and Gray, and also is the leader of Ropes and Gray's firm-wide sector on semiconductors. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great. So you're in Ropes and Gray Silicon Valley office. How long have you been there, and how long have you been with Ropes and Gray? Yeah, so I have been with Ropes and Gray my entire legal career. I joined Ropes and Gray out of law school in 2006. I've been in Silicon Valley since 2014, and before then, I was in our New York office. So I've had the the benefit and privilege of working both in New York and in Silicon Valley. Great. So. What made you uh, decide to move from New York to Silicon Valley? Well, I grew up primarily in Southern California, and I met my wife in New York, and she also happened to be from Southern California, which was to the delight of both of our parents. And we decided to move back to California when my wife got pregnant with our first child. So he moved here about three months before he was born. Um, and had the great joy of living out of a hotel for the first month as we uh, navigated the challenges of finding a house in Silicon Valley. Not necessarily the easiest thing, I'm sure. No. (laughs) My wife was quite a trooper to put up with that. Great. So you're in the intellectual property litigation practice. So tell us a little bit more about your practice. What do you do? What clients do you serve? What industries are you working with? Sure. So I do primarily patent and trade secret litigation, and most of my clients are in various high-tech industries, and they do span the technology categories from cybersecurity to semiconductors to consumer electronic devices um, and wearables and really anything uh, with high-tech components, software, or other computer technologies embedded in them. I've worked for many household names um, such as Apple, Palo Alto Networks, um, Roku, and Zoom. Um, and you know, my practice spans both representing patent owners um, who are seeking to enforce their patent rights or trade secrets, as well as accused infringers of patents or companies accused of stealing trade secrets. Most of my work is in district courts across the country, um, and I also do some work at the Patent Trial and Appeal Board um, at the U.S. Patent Office. Sounds fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about what products are involved in some of these matters you've been working on? Of course. Many of my cases involve the types of devices and products that we use every day, devices like iPhones and iWatches, devices and and, and products that may be powering a lot of the systems you use at work. There are uh, cybersecurity devices that are protecting many of our company's internal networks. I've had a privilege of working with Zoom, um, and we all, you know, I think starting now in the pandemic are quite familiar with uh, their platform for uh, video conferencing. And I've also worked on cases involving smart TVs, including, you know, hardware aspects of those televisions, as well as the on-screen technology that allows us to discover and find all the TV shows we love to watch. Sounds great. I think a lot of us are familiar with a lot of those different products. I'd love to learn a little bit more about cybersecurity since that's a little behind the scenes. Uh, You had mentioned that there are hardware products that 
companies use for cybersecurity. Can you give us a little more detail? Sure. So there is, as you could imagine, quite a variety of cybersecurity products out there. You know, they come both as hardware and software devices now. So we have you know, cybersecurity that runs in the cloud, just like so many things these days run in the cloud. And while that's you know, sort of a nebulous concept, really what that means is that your security is being um, hosted, not by your company, but by you know, another company's set of computers and all your traffic will run through there. There are also hardware devices that sit behind the scenes and that intercept and inspect you know, computer communications to make sure that malicious actors, malicious content are not penetrating through the security of your company's computers um, and infiltrating its, you know, internal servers and the like. So these are really, you know, interesting and complex products. They are integrating a lot of different technologies from, you know, networking type technologies to deep packet inspection when you look inside of the content of a communication between various computers to see what is going on. And a lot of it is involves guesswork as well because bad actors are developing new techniques all the time for attacking computer networks. Um, and so part of the challenge is staying one step ahead of them and trying to develop new technologies to, to fend off those types of attacks um, and prevent companies' you know, data and information from being taken hostage. Fascinating. Now, you mentioned both patent protection for a company as well as trade secrets. Can you explain to our audience a little bit about the differences between those and whether there are any similarities? Sure. So a patent is a really a, a, a grant of a limited time monopoly from, from the government that allows the patent holder to be the exclusive person who can make, use, or sell um, the invention that's patented. And the exchange for that 20-year that, that monopoly on the right to use that invention is that you have to disclose to the world through your patent application how to make that invention. So it's a trade-off. If I have a new invention, I disclose it to the patent office, which then in turn publishes my patent application so others can see how to make and use my invention. And if it's determined to be patentable, then I get the right for the next 20 years from filing of that application to be the only person that gets to use that uh, or sell that invention, unless I license somebody else to do so as well. Um, and that's quite a you know, popular way of protecting new innovations because it gives you that control over the use of that technology. In contrast, trade secrets are a way to protect innovations by keeping them secret, you know, as the name would imply. So it's not any sort of grant of a right from the government to do anything. You're protecting your information by keeping it secret. And there are different ways to do that. You need to ensure that you have proper procedures in place internally in your company to prevent data and information from leaking out. If you are working with a partner on developing new technology, ensuring that your agreements have proper confidentiality protections in them, ensuring that agreements with employees have proper provisions in them to make sure that they are treating your your data and your innovations um, how you would like to have them treated. So they're different in terms of how they are protected, a patent being 
a grant from the government of a limited monopoly and a trade secret being something you protect really by keeping that information secret from others. You know, but they have similarities in that they're used to protect new innovations and, and new technologies and new developments from being used by others. Thanks. That was a very, very helpful explanation. One follow-up. I know if you have a, a patent and you see someone is uh, using the invention without permission, you could bring a suit. But how does litigation involving a trade secret work? What is the circumstances that uh, would give rise to that kind of litigation? Sure. So you know, it's very similar in that a company or a person who believes that their trade secret has been stolen, they can also file a lawsuit against the person or entity that they believe stole their trade secrets. It can often be very difficult to to learn if your trade secrets have been stolen because many times the technology is not you know, readily apparent in whatever product or activity is being sold or undertaken by the party that you believe may have stolen your trade secret. But there are laws and mechanisms to enforce um, you know, trade secret protections and to bring into court those that you believe have stolen or misappropriated your trade secrets. In other words, use them in ways that are not permissible. You know, one, one key difference, though, between the patent and trade secret context is that to be hauled into court for misusing a trade secret really doesn't require some, you know, misdeeds or some theft of that trade secret. Um, whereas with patents, you can develop your own technology and it just so happens that you end up developing something that somebody has already patented and you can still be liable as a patent infringer, even if you didn't mean to infringe, even if you did not know about the existence of that patent. You know, in contrast for trade secrets, the claim for trade secrets is really around misappropriation of that trade secrets. It's somebody taking that innovation uh, when they were not supposed to do so and misusing it in a way they were obligated not to do. Mm, so the, the true bad actor. That's right. And those cases are often very interesting for for juries because there you know, is at least an allegation of some theft involved. So you've been an intellectual property litigator for, for a number of years. You must have some interesting war stories. And is there one that you can tell us about today? Sure. So this one goes back a number of years, and I, and I like to tell it because I think it reflects very um, well on the things that, um, to me, make Ropes and Gray such a special place and the, and the reason I've spent my career here. When I was a, a, a junior associate um, back in our, our New York office, I had the opportunity to join a trial team for a jury trial that took place in Delaware. And I know, as junior associates often do, I was very close to the facts and I was very close to the law. And at that trial, I had the opportunity to present argument to the court on what we call the jury instructions. That's the phase at the end of the trial where the judge will instruct the jury on what the law is. And as you can imagine, parties often hotly contest what the judge should tell the jury because they want it spun in their favor. Well, I had the benefit of having some great mentors and, and partners that really trusted in me, and they gave me the opportunity to to present that argument, which was about three hours um, after the trial day ended in court. Um, you know, in contrast, the our opponent in that case uh, put up their 
their lead partner to argue the, the jury instructions. And it was clear that he was not as close to the law or to the facts of the case. And I was really able to march through the instructions one by one and, and, and tell the court why each of our proposals aligned with the law and also why they applied to the facts of this case. In, in contrast, the other attorney you know, engaged in sort of a lot of hand-waving, and it was clear that he was just arguing uh, his position based upon what he thought was right, not with adequate support in the law or the facts of the case. And after a time, the judge just became exasperated and kicked the opposing attorney out of his courtroom, told him to go work on his closing argument and find someone closer to the case, case law and the facts to, to present the argument. So it was a really good a learning opportunity for me um, and something I've taken to heart, which is you know, trust your younger associates, trust your younger colleagues, um, especially those that have the opportunity to really be in the weeds with the facts and the law and spend the time doing that heavy lifting to, um, to present the case um, in, in the best light. Um, so I've, I've really taken that to heart as a partner now, um, working with junior colleagues to try to give them the opportunities um, to have those stand-up roles in the courtroom, uh, in deposition um, scenarios, or anywhere else where they can really show that they can shine. That's a great story, and I'm sure the uh, attorneys who work with you really do appreciate those opportunities. Turning now to what you see coming in the future in your field in intellectual property litigation in the high-tech space, what are some of the, the hot topics coming down the road? So, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think one of the hot topics really revolves around the convergence of technologies you know, really disparate and, and different technologies in single products. You know, you take uh, an iPhone, you know, or any other smartphone, already a very complex product with lots of technologies baked into it. And every day they're getting new technologies added to them, you know, augmented reality technology, um, health monitoring technology, other, um, other technologies from different fields. Um, and, and this is probably nowhere more apparent than in the automotive industry, where we have you know, what used to be relatively, you know, I would say, simple mechanical cars, right? Obviously, some complex parts, but there was an engine, a chassis, you know, exhaust system, maybe a radio, and maybe some electronics to control windows and some of the other devices. Now, they are complex computers you know, on wheels, and, and new technologies are being added to them every day. We see the addition of self-driving technologies, uh, the interconnectedness of cars, you know, with new wireless capabilities, the introduction of 4G and 5G technologies to automobiles, uh, the introduction of new powertrains. You know, we have, obviously, the advent of the electric vehicle. Um, so this really does cut across a lot of industries, and this convergence of technologies can create a lot of new complexities for clients. So how are clients that have this convergence, how are they uh, dealing with it in terms of intellectual property issues? With this convergence of technologies, there is an increased risk of some sort of dispute around IP because with the more technology you introduce into your product, the more 
IP, the more intellectual property there is involved. The more um, uh, that you know, other companies or other parties, other holders of these intellectual property rights may believe that your product you know, is using their technology. And so, you know, one challenge is just anticipating where those risks are coming from. You know, the automotive industry, the automotive companies knew who their key competitors were, who are the companies that they are likely to see in the courtroom for allegations of, you know, intellectual property theft or misuse or patent infringement. But now with so many different technologies coming under one umbrella, there may be completely different avenues in which those risks emanate from. You know, new, new rights holders that were not competitors in the past may be competitors now. And you know, one challenge you have from that too is parties may have widely differing viewpoints on what the value of a dispute is. You know, if, I, if I have a patent on a particular piece of, a, of an automobile, a, a small component, you know, some new technology, some, some com- part of you know, the self-driving system, I may you know, value the case uh, differently than you as the, you know, as the car manufacturer who says, okay, well, I have thousands of technologies baked into this product. Your technology is only a, a small piece of that puzzle. And you know, finding a resolution to a dispute often involves finding common ground as to, to valuing that suit. Um, and this convergence can make that really difficult. Very interesting. We like to close these podcasts with a little bit of a a lightning round with some personal information about yourself. I'll ask you some questions and let's get some quick answers. What city do you currently live in? I currently live in Redwood City, which is in the Bay Area and the peninsula just north of Palo Alto. And you mentioned, uh, at least when you moved out and were living in a hotel, that uh, your wife was pregnant. How many children do you have? We now have two. I have an eight-year-old and uh, a daughter who is almost three who was born just at the beginning of the pandemic. Interesting books you've read recently. Well, I'm reading an interesting one right now called For Blood or Money about the development of um, life-saving cancer drugs. And it's a fascinating look at the, the drug development process and what's even more fascinating to me is that um, my, one of my aunts uh, is featured in the book who had a, a leading role in bringing a couple of cancer drugs to market. Wow. I hope you got the book autographed. Well, I, I, I'm going to do that this weekend. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. If and when you have free time with a job and two kids, uh, what's uh, some of your favorite activities? Yeah, so I love to play outdoor sports. Um, I, you know, with my kids, we love to go play soccer at the park. We love to throw the Frisbee and play basketball. Um, when I have a little bit more free time, I love to go up to the mountains and go snowboarding. Um, and occasionally when I can find even a little bit more time, do a little bit of rock climbing. Sounds adventurous. All right. Here's an important question. In a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which is more important, the peanut butter or the jelly? <laughs> well... Uh, I would say the peanut butter, but to me, the most important part would be the bread. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. This has been been great. Great to know you. Great to learn about your practice and about you personally. Uh, So thanks for being with us today. And to all of our listeners out there, this has been the RNG Tech Studio podcast. 
It is available on the Ropes and Gray website, on the RNG Tech Studio podcast page, and also wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining as well. And thanks, everybody, and have a great day.